the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is that we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So in 1987, President Ronald Reagan went to the Brandenburg Gate and said this. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. And then just two years later, this happened. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. The East German media chief in the Communist Party said a short while ago that anyone who wants to leave East Germany and go anywhere in the world is free to do so. So it's, it's hard to fathom what a stunning moment that was. I still it, have a piece of Berlin Wall sitting on the, the shelf. Do you my, really? Yep, I do. I do. So, uh, Stephen, my husband, was there, and, and he, brought, he brought me back a piece with, you know, with the graffiti with the spray paint on it because it was, I mean, it was spray painted, obviously, only from the western side as this monstrosity. And, of course, if you go to the Reagan Library, they have the large chunk of the Berlin Wall Fantastic. there. Um, so it, it was a world-changing event. And, uh, you know, I think it would be interesting for us to talk a little bit about the day, about how the world has changed and how we are still, how the reverberations of that collapse of that wall are still affecting the world today. It's funny, you know, because for people like us who grew up and went to school while the Soviet Union was, I don't want to say going strong, but certainly while the Soviet Union continued to maintain its, its evil empire, as Ronald Reagan aptly called it, we never thought it would go away. And, yeah. and now, you've heard me tell this story before, but... I had this kid, this grad student, come in to talk to me last year, and uh, and he said he asked me a question, and then he 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 said, and so you know, he referred to the Soviet Union with air quotes, and I looked at him and I said, dude, air quotes? Stalin killed thirty million people. This is seventy years of imprisonment, torture, misery, death, and danger to America air quotes yeah. but that's that's how but, it is now but this is because this generation today of young people has not did not grow up with a living memory of this like we did and you know there was a there was a book that came out a few years ago called the black book of communism and it's a really really amazing book and this was the first effort by uh, by scholars to go back and actually document how many people died at the hands of communist socialist regimes around the world and the conclusion they came to was close to 100 million 
I mean, that is just right. I mean, if it's you think the of, most murderous ideology in the history of the world. Right. It's not just the Soviets. It, we're talking about Vietnam. We're talking about you know Indochina. We're talking about China. Talk about China, the People's Republic of China, that to this day has these concentration camps in in Xinjiang. We're talking about lots and lots of places. What's stunning to me, though, and I know we'll come back to this, but what's stunning to me is that nobody would ever think to call themselves a Nazi. You know, you don't see, well, you don't see, yeah. you know, you don't see people going out going, Bernie Sanders, you know, we need to defeat this socialist ideology. And therefore, that's why I've started the new Nazi party. You know, the only problem with national socialism under the Nazis was how it was implemented. And yet that is what is being said today in political campaigns in the United States. It is as if the evils of socialism and communism never happened. The difference is, is that the Nazis killed in the name of an evil agenda, whereas the communists killed in the name of what they claimed to be a, a greater good. That communism was, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. We're creating the dictatorship of the proletariat so that we can overthrow the bourgeoisie and lift the poor up. So they killed in the name of a lie, which was that they were doing something good. But for some reason, because the lie persists, even though the regimes have died, that somehow... Uh, that the, the regimes and the people they took with them. Exactly. Now, I know, you know, you guys are all used yeah. to listening to me and Mark Bicker about stuff, but on this, there's just not a, not a sliver of daylight between us on, on the evils of this. And that, that's why this moment was so unbelievably important, because on top of everything else, it was a culmination of a foreign policy by the United States, yes, embraced more by some presidents than another, but at the end of the day to keep Europe whole and free after World War II and to protect Europe from the predations of the Soviet Union. And this wall that, that went up to literally divide the continent, the, the sort of the manifestation of what Churchill called the Iron Curtain, this was a physical manifestation of that, this wall that kept East Germans into the, the Soviet bloc, all of a sudden disappeared. And it, it was an unbelievable victory for everything that the United States stands for in the world, freedom, capitalism, democracy, individual success, earned success, you know, living your life as you choose. And, you know, when we were growing up, no one ever imagined that that wall would come down. Oh, never. No one ever imagined that it would happen. We were, we were taught, and, you know, you're right that there were, that it was a bipartisan accomplishment and that, you know, you had Kennedy and, you, and, and Truman led the Berlin airlift and, you know, the, there, were, there was bipartisanship, but there were, not everybody was completely on board with the, with the policy of victory. I mean, we were told that, you know, we needed to have peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union, that uh, the idea that when Ronald Reagan came in and said at the start of his presidency, my philosophy is simple. We win, they lose. People thought that he was nuts. Uh, people thought that this was this was destabilizing. People thought this was dangerous. And yet, you know, and you know what? What really pisses me off? I can still speak like that, right? We've well, had, we have we an have explicit our... rating, so you can say it even That's more right. explicitly if you like. Yeah, well, I was about to use a, an even What the hell word. pisses you off, Danny? Well, what <laughs> pisses me off, Mark, thank you for asking, is... <laughs> Is the anti-Americanism that we see in Germany now, Germans trust Russia more than they trust the United States in polls. It is absolutely outrageous. It really is. You know, I get it. You know, you may not like our president. You may not like this president. You may not like that president. But the notion that Germany as a nation is so dismissive of the sacrifices that were made by Americans, by our 30 freaking thousand troops that are still on the ground in Germany today, that they dismiss this is just 
hugely offensive. They weren't so appreciative back then as well. I mean, you remember when Ronald Reagan decided to employ intermediate-range missiles in Europe, the anti-nuclear protests in, in Germany and across Europe were enormous. There was When Ronald Reagan gave his last speech at a Republican convention, which was in 1992, it was really his farewell speech to the Republican Party. It was after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I distinctly remember he said, you know, the, I was watching the people at the other convention saying, we won the Cold War. Who do they mean by we? <laughs> you know, I'm perfectly. I'm, I'm all the per- policies that Ronald Reagan put in place yeah, no, to no. defeat communism, they oppose. They oppose the Strategic Defense Initiative, which which uh, was critical because it was it absolutely would have bankrupted the Soviet Union and meant they couldn't win the arms race. Reagan had a clear strategy. The, the Soviet Union didn't, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. But it didn't fall. It was pushed over. You're right, because you know what? You need to understand what the lessons of history are in order not to commit the same mistakes again. The fact that Barack Obama was willing to appease our various enemies, the fact that Bill Clinton watched in the face of attacks on the United States, the USS Cole, the al-Qaeda attacks in, in East Africa, all of these things, those are lessons for us. And they were lessons that, that we should have learned, which is that enemies, our adversaries, respect strength. Ronald Reagan really understood that. And that, at the end of the day, is what the victory of us over the Soviet empire was all about, was not just our military strength, although that was very important as well, but the strength of our ideology, the strength of our commitment to what we believe in, our values, our morals, our system, which is the best system in the world. And for those people who go around saying that America is the reason why we have these ills in the world, which we hear too often in political debate these days, those people are dead wrong, and those people would not have led to the fall of the wall. So you're right. And also Rant the, over. the willingness to speak truth. You know, when Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire, we take we now all celebrate that. Back then, people set their hair on fire about it. When they were when they were preparing the Berlin Wall speech, you know, Peter Robinson, who wrote that speech, is a friend of mine, and the State Department kept taking that art out of the speech, and Peter Robinson didn't put it back in. Ronald Reagan kept putting it back in, and then the State Department kept saying, "How did that get put back in the draft? Take it out." And so Peter would take it out, and Ronald Reagan would write it back in. They thought it was too provocative. To, to say, tear down this wall. Now it's, you know, celebrated. But back then, there were lots of people wringing their hands and worried about, you know, not, not, we can't provoke these people. We can't provoke the Soviet Union. This is too provocative. And uh, you need yes. to be strong and you need to be forceful. You need to speak truth to power and you need to, and we need strength, military strength, moral strength, economic strength. And I want everybody to note this, not because you think, oh my God, Danny and Mark are going off on some Republican hoo-ha cheering session, but because you have heard this theme in previous conversations and agreed with it, I hope. One of which is, we pretended that we couldn't go up against the Russians in Syria, that it would be too dangerous for us to create a no-fly zone, that we couldn't confront the Russians supporting the Assad regime. And, And the answer, of course, is, you know, of course we could have. We killed 200 Russian mercenaries on the ground in Syria. They did nothing. We pulled out and the Russians created a no-fly zone in two days yep. that we could have done. Strength is important. And it's of course it's not all about strength. You have to have the convictions. You've got to have the principles first. Strength just backs them up. And it gives them makes, credibility. It also makes the need for military force less likely. Ronald Reagan's phrase was always peace through strength, that if you have a strong military and people know you're Ronald Reagan used our military probably less than any modern president. But they knew that he was willing to use it, and so therefore that that prevented the need uh, to engage military. But let's let's talk a little bit, Danny, about 
how the world has changed since 1989. There was the famous Francis Fukuyama uh, essay, The End of History, where he basically, and became a book, started out an essay in the national interest. He argued basically the great ideological struggles of the 20th century between liberal democracy and fascism and then liberal democracy and communism were over and history had reached its end and that liberal democracy had won. And we've seen, of course, there's been a lot of talk of the uh, the return of history as the forces of authoritarianism have pushed back. But really, in truth, Danny, the world looks pretty good from the perspective of democracy today. We're not fighting wars in which millions of people die. No. We're fighting about wars in which, in, in the case of, you and I have noted this, in the case of Syria, six soldiers died, two civilians. You know, We mourn every one of those deaths. But you're talking about... Oh, hundreds of thousands of Syrians. Of course. But I mean, when you talk about Americans, you know, we are talking about the wars of the 20th century that defined, that defined in many people's eyes that century. We're talking about wars in which hundreds of thousands of Americans died. Tens of thousands of Americans died. That is not the case in any of the conflicts that we fought in since the fall of the wall. I pulled together some of the data just to Go show ahead. how the world has changed. So in 1989... There were just 51 democracies in the world and 105 autocracies. By 2018, there were 99 democracies and just 80 autocracies. The number of people living in democracies since 1989 has nearly doubled from 2.3 billion people to 4.1 billion. Now makes up more than half the people on the face of the earth. And of those remaining in autocracy, four out of five live in communist China. So outside of communist China, the world is, is virtually entirely democratic poverty. So with with freedom comes uh, entrepreneurship and economic prosperity. Since 1989, the percentage of the world's population that lives in extreme poverty has been cut in half from 52% majority to just 21% today. Brookings Institution last pushed a report out that September of 2018, a year ago, for the first time since agricultural-based civilization began 10,000 years ago, the majority of humankind, 3.8 billion people, live in households with enough discretionary expenditure to be considered middle class or rich. For the first time in human history, most people in the world are not poor or on the verge of poverty, but are actually either middle class or wealthy. That is a huge, huge transformation. Literacy. In 1989, one in three people in the world were illiterate. Today, that's just 15%. Uh, We have more freedom, more leisure time, higher literacy rates, better life expectancy, lower child mortality, less poverty, less hunger, less violent crime than in any time in human history. And most of that transformation has happened since 1989 until today. And, you know, folks may, may not see the direct linkage, but it's important to understand what kind of resources the battle with the Soviet Union took. This was all-consuming for the American people and for our allies. This was what NATO was built for. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was built as an alliance to face up to the Soviet Union and to the Warsaw Pact. Once the Soviet Union fell, once we didn't have to face the threat of the Soviet Union and the destabilization of the globe that the Soviet Union represented everywhere, Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, Asia, once we didn't have to face with that, we could actually focus on other parts of the world. And while I have a lot of quibbles with our foreign policy today, as I have with all of our presidents, the reality is that the United States has, through the systems that we have built up and supported, the Bretton Woods systems, uh, you know, the, the global trading systems, and the safety of the global commons that we underwrite and that we are able to underwrite because we don't have that adversary in the Soviet Union. Because of that, these things have happened. So three factors I would, I would credit with this change. 
first factor is the absolute collapse of socialism, with the Berlin Wall collapsed not just a wall, but an entire system of government that put people in chains, both politically and economically, and those chains were lifted. Second of all, the expansion of democratic capitalism across the world. And third, the rise of the U.S., as you point out, as the sole superpower. And the Pax Americana that came, that came out of it. It is because of the peace and security that we guarantee around the world that both the United, in the United States and across the world, people have able, been able to build lives of freedom, opportunity, and prosperity. Um, with, with, despite all the challenges we right. face, and they're real challenges, there's never been a better time. If you could go up to heaven and pick in advance what part, moment in history you would be able to be born in, if you didn't pick now, you'd be insane. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump notwithstanding. We have a great opportunity to talk about this with uh, with an old friend of ours, of AEI's, Ambassador Rick Grinnell. Rick is the United States ambassador to Germany. He's been cutting a wide swath <laughs> in Berlin. He's loud. He's assertive in defense of American interests. He's interest. American. He just He's about hosted, as American as you can be. He just hosted. <laughs> uh, he just hosted the Secretary of State, Secretary Pompeo, in Berlin for uh, for a visit to celebrate the 30th anniversary, and they they celebrated by putting up a statue of uh, of Ronald Reagan on the U.S. Uh, on the U.S. That embassy the Germans in didn't Berlin. Want. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. All right, Rick. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark and so, Danny. I'm really excited. Well, so you're joining us by phone from Berlin, where uh, you are the ambassador to Germany, and you just had Secretary Pompeo in town, along with a lot of folks from the Reagan Library, to uh, mark the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's an amazing story. In 1987, Ronald Reagan said, tear down this wall, and two years later, it happened. It's a gra- great American story. Tell us about uh, the uh, commemorations. Yeah, well, it's pretty exciting here in Berlin. Uh, the entire area surrounding Brandenburg Gate has been turned into really a festival. There's a big celebration in both in the former GDR and in Berlin and throughout Germany. Uh, I just spent the day with Secretary Pompeo in Leipzig, and we were there meeting with some original protesters in 1989. It was a couple of women, a couple of men who were telling their stories about being involved in a church and wanting a peaceful demonstration, but they were just really tired of the uh, oppression that the communist government was uh, putting upon them. They just wanted to be free. They wanted their kids to uh, experience some freedom, and they took to the streets, and 70,000 people in Leipzig started this entire process. And uh, now we're sitting here, it's 30 years later, the fall of the wall, and it's pretty exciting. It's pretty humbling to be the U.S. ambassador here, and uh, at this time having the Secretary of State here to, to really go through, I think, the emotions that he had when he was in the Army and serving in Germany in oh, that's right. the late 80s. And so we we kind of retraced some of his steps, but... You know, I have to say that I was really struck today with how important it is for even Germans to to see, and and maybe we can get into this a little bit about uh, you know the the German psyche of of why they aren't meeting their NATO obligations and why they have a, a really a problem with uh, 
preparedness for a, a military that's ready. But uh, I was struck today with how important it was for just regular Germans to see the, the story of Secretary Mike Pompeo, which is that you know a young army officer who grew up to be Secretary of State, it sends such a strong message that a career of service and then the military, starting off in the military, can really um, someday make you Secretary of State. I couldn't agree with you more, Rick. And, you know, one of the things that I think is great about this commemoration and the fact that the secretary went over and and the fact that a statue of Ronald Reagan is, is being erected in Berlin is to remind not just Americans, but to remind Germans how instrumental the American people have been in their freedom. You know, when we think about the end of World War II, and we think about the reconstruction of Europe, when we think of the Berlin airlift, when we think of the role that we played in NATO guarding the Fulda Gap against a Soviet invasion, when we think about coming back to, you know, Ronald Reagan standing there, this was something that the United States sacrificed treasure for. This was something the United States sacrificed blood for, was for the freedom of these people against whom we fought for us for four years and in Europe six ugly years and prior to that in World War One, It's amazing. It really is. Do you feel like that's appreciated enough? <laughs> <laughs> Danny, it's such a great question. Uh, it's not appreciated enough, I think, is the real answer. We just went through this past weekend. The foreign minister of Germany wrote a definitive opinion piece that was produced in more than 20 papers across Europe, and it was all about the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall and how far Germany has come. And this is the German foreign minister, and he didn't mention the United States in that opinion piece. Wow. And that was a real, um, I think, shock to me to, to see that. I, I was very disappointed to really see that in print because, as you say, and I think you're exactly right, Americans have sacrificed a lot for Germany. And I think about, you know, my partner and I just took his grandfather, 95-year-old grandfather, two weeks ago to Normandy. It was his second time in Normandy. First time is when he was a 19-year-old young man and he stormed the beaches. And we've tried to get Grandpa Lacey to come over a couple of times and due to health or other reasons, he, he wasn't able to come. He, he did come this time. We walked him through the cemetery there and I was really struck by the sacrifice is real and generational from Americans. And as you point out, the Berlin airlift and even the, the Marshall Plan and, and today, you know, we have 50,000 plus troops, American troops in Germany. It's a, it's a big commitment that the Americans have made, the American taxpayer has made. And for me, what that means is that you can't pull us apart that the Americans and the Germans are really committed together. Our business communities are really strong and, and committed. You know, you've got BMW building cars in South Carolina. You've got VW building cars in Tennessee and Daimler employing people in Alabama. Lufthansa, the great German airline, has 15,000 U.S. employees. So uh, I think my point is, is you couldn't pull us apart in terms of people and culture. And so we've got to be able to get this right. And I think where the Germans are in terms of 
the lessons of World War II is one of the uh, issues I think that we face is that in many ways I think they've read the wrong lessons of World War II and that stepping back from the world stage and not joining the British or the French and the Americans, say, um, in Syria to confront Assad, who's been gassing children. You know, this is one of the things that I try to make clear here is that I don't think that the Germans should say, we hate war, we know the horrors of war, nobody wants us involved, so we're going to take a back seat as the largest economy in Europe. I think they need to say, no, we've seen this before, and we will join a coalition that stops Assad that punishes him for gassing children. And, and I think that that's the message that the Trump administration is trying to bring to, to Germany is that we want you to step up and meet your NATO obligations because it's really important. Well, they just announced, I think, that they're, they think they can get to 2% by, what was it, 2030? <laughs> it was 2032. I, I would love to. I would love to turn this around and know what you guys think. We've been working very hard <laughs> on this issue. Uh, as you know, in 2014, the Wales Pledge was NATO members had 10 years to get to the 2%. So from 2014 to 2024, NATO said, make adjustments in your budget. We're giving you 10 years to ramp up. You got to get to 2% by 2024. And I think, you know, the, the reality is, is that the Bush administration, the Obama administration, everybody had been asking the Germans and others to pay more. It was, it was largely ignored, but now they are. And, you know, I do hear from some Germans who say, oh, we don't like the tweets or the pressure. And I always <laughs> push back and I say, you know, the, the only lesson I know is that the tweets and the pressure have worked. You ignored us for a long time, and now th th we are on a trajectory. We are moving up. $100 billion increase in defense spending since 2016 for Europe and Canada. That number is amazing. I think that's a total credit to President Trump being focused on increasing defense spending. But for the Germans, they've creeped up, and you know they're at somewhere like 1.3, 1.28, and and sometimes 1.32 percent of their GDP for defense spending. And the defense minister, the new one, has announced that that she thinks they can get to 2 percent by 2031. We are making progress, but my question to you is, how, how do you think this is going to go over with the American people? Well, you know, the problem for us, Rick, frankly, uh, back here is that for those of us who just who believe in NATO, for all of the reasons that I outlined and that you have outlined when we talk about the importance of Germany to, to the United States over the years, for all of us who believe in this, it really, really hurts the case for the alliance when we're the only ones who really believe in it, or we and Poland are the really the only ones who want to invest in it, or we and the British and the Poles are the only ones. We need Germany. We need France. And when the American people see that, they are right to ask themselves, why are, the only, why are we the only ones who invest in this? And I know Mark has a question for you as well. Yeah. So, I mean, why don't we, uh, when we tell the Germans uh, we're going to build Fort Trump in Poland and move some of those troops from Germany... Yeah, I know it's such a great point, and and we have we I mean we've we've said to the Germans that you know you're making it increasingly difficult for us when when you're not meeting these obligations. President Trump has said, why don't we take a couple of thousand and move them from Germany to Poland? Poland said, great, we'll take them, 
<laughs> so uh, there is that conversation. But, you know, the, the socialists here, the social democrats, um, who are the ones largely resisting meeting the NATO obligation, is also they're the party that talks a lot about being multilateral and European. And they want Germany to, to be Europe and to, to act in concert with multilateral decisions. And, and so what I always say to my SPD friends, my socialist friends here, is I say, I can't think of a more successful multilateral organization than NATO. If you really want to be a great multilateralist, then meet your obligation at NATO. You had mentioned your socialist friends, so let's broaden out a little bit beyond Germany and talk about this resurgence of socialism we're seeing three decades after the fall of the wall. Uh, there's a poll here in the U.S., a Gallup poll, found that 58% majority of young Americans think that socialism would be a good thing for our country. How is the sentiment uh, for, for socialism uh, in, in Germany and Europe, and what do you make of the fact that socialism is having a resurgence in the you know, three decades after the end of the Cold War? Well, what's really interesting is that here in Europe, I think it's the opposite. That's, that's not the case, is that there are young leaders coming on the scene that are definitely not socialist and are, are capitalists and embracing capitalism in, in, a, in a big way. Certainly, you know, bringing this back to the 30 years of the fall of the wall, we're hearing that in Germany over and over of how pleased they are to turn away from the system communism that really held uh, the East back and to embrace a unified Germany and a new unified Germany that really solidly went into the West. And there's no looking back on that. I just read a question and answer with Chancellor Merkel. And one of the questions was, you know, what do you think would have come of you if the GDR didn't end, if the wall would still be up and there, there were two systems, what would have happened to Angela Merkel? And she flatly said, I'd be in the United States. I would have gone away from this system and realized I had to leave. And the magnet of the United States, the draw of the U.S., what, what she had seen about capitalism was really something that even she wanted to uh, experience. And so it, it's a good answer to those in Germany who are thinking about the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall and, and how their lives um, have changed. So one of the things that I think is important about commemorating this is just reemphasizing this history that you've talked about. Because the problem of, of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and its empire uh, which included the German Democratic Republic, in other words, East Germany, was not just that government ran everything to the benefit of government and against the interests of the people. It was, and you know, those of us of a certain age remember, it was a place where you were a captive. You couldn't leave. Where East German soldiers, if you approached the wall, had dogs, and they shot to kill. And People died, not in small numbers in these countries, not to speak of the battle to be free in places like the Czech Republic and Hungary, and of course, leaving out entirely the experience of the Soviet Union itself. So, so few people seem to remember, and I worry that Angela Merkel could be one of the last. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great point. Um, there was 27 miles of a border wall, and, and the mammoth 
task of trying to keep people in. Remember, it was literally designed to keep in individuals and an entire society cordoned off and unable to experience freedom, denying individuals all of their rights and, and the progress of the world in order to keep them captive. And that's not something to romanticize. It's certainly not something that the younger generation should look at and pretend it was an easier time or a better time or a response to the overages of capitalism. And so I think it's a, it is up to us to tell these stories, and it's why the 30th anniversary is amazing. It, you know, still I'm sensing every moment, I'm experiencing it, and I'm overwhelmed. And I have to say that as someone who voted for the first time for, for Ronald Reagan in 1984, my first time to be able to vote, uh, to be the U.S. ambassador and successfully bring a statue that honors Ronald Reagan to Berlin. It's, it's almost inconceivable that it has never happened. But um, the city of Berlin did not want to put up a statue. And uh, I just thought, you know... Did they really oppose it, Rick? They did. They did. And there's still big opposition that, um, you know, that, that, I mean, look at the foreign minister here. He just wrote an entire op-ed and never thanked the United States. So you, you can see why his party, they control Berlin, and consecutive mayors have just not wanted to have a statue of Ronald Reagan, so there's never been one put up. And so we decided we were going to take matters into our own hands and put a statue up on the top of the U.S. Embassy and rename the outdoor space the Ronald Reagan Terrace. Well, Rick, we're very glad that you're our ambassador to Germany and that you were able to be there to do that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a ton, Please, Rick, really. Thank you both of you. I'd love to show you the, the Ronald Reagan Terrace. We'd love to come. We'll be there. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Okay, Mark, today's my turn to say, wow, that really was a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot about what was going on. Rick is in Germany at a pretty interesting time, just apart from the anniversary of the wall and the secretary's visit. It really has been a time of political turmoil in Germany, the rise of a lot of nasty political parties in Germany as well. And it was pretty interesting to hear just just how the U.S.-German relationship is evolving at this moment in time, 30 years after the fall of the wall. Yeah, and I know. I was actually fascinated by his uh, what he told us, that the German foreign minister wrote this whole op-ed about all the progress Germany has made and didn't even mention America. It's it, it, that's just that's just so rude, rude, unsurprising, and yet still really insulting. But you'd think on this 30th anniversary that he would at least politely signal a little appreciation for the troops, the money, the support that we gave to West Germany and the support we gave to, to German unification. Yeah. So enough about Germany, because the fact is, <laughs> look, the wall fell in Germany, but it was a lot bigger than Germany. So here's what I want to discuss with you, Danny, is that we were talking in the intro about how all the economic progress that has happened and political progress around the world. The, the world is more democratic than it's ever been, it's more prosperous than it's ever been, more free than it's ever been. We've got our challenges in the world, but really this is a great time to be alive and it's because of the collapse of socialism and the rise of democratic capitalism. That's but, why we're making the world safe again for socialism, apparently. Well, that, exactly. So, I, you know, Gallup poll that I mentioned to uh, Rick, 58% majority of young Americans think that socialism would be a good thing for the country. Now, I know a lot 
lot of our younger listeners are going to say, okay, boomer, you know, uh, you know, t- teach us something else. But, you know, yeah, okay, millennials. What gives with this rise of socialism among but it's young people? Piece. Look, it's, it, it is not, I wouldn't say that it is malign on the part of young people. It's ignorance. Um, and God, I know we sound really old, but there is... A, we talked about this when we talked about the Holocaust. Like the fact that, you know, that one in five millennials can't name a, a concentration camp. I mean, don't even, have never even heard of Auschwitz. Of course, if you can't name a concentration camp, you have no idea what socialism wrought in the 20th century. The millions who died under the boot of socialism. You don't remember that the Nazi party was actually called the National Socialist German Workers Party. As the party. director of the Auschwitz Museum pointed out that right. National Socialism was actually socialist. Yes. No, I know. And, and, and if you don't know that, then you think having a, a socialist as a candidate for president of the United States is cool. I mean, just the fact that we have two of the leading Democratic candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie Sanders, who embraces the title of socialism. Elizabeth Warren, who eschews it but still practices it. It's unbelievable. Like, can you imagine if somebody And by the ran... way, neither of them... Are Pete Buttigieg, if Pete Buttigieg, a young guy, was doing this, I would be more forgiving. Bernie Sanders lived through all of this. He went Bernie to the Sanders. Soviet Union. He liked, he loved the Soviet Union. Yeah, no, I went for his honeymoon. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he should know better. Elizabeth Warren, 70 years old, she should know better. They lived through this. They know what happened. I get that a lot of Americans that grew up after the Cold War and that this is for them, this is like when we used to talk to our parents about World War II. This is history that our parents taught us about. We sort of know it, but it's not our lived experience. But right across, you know, down in our hemisphere is Venezuela, which is literally the most blessed land on the face of the earth in terms of natural resources, more oil than any place other, possibly than Saudi Arabia, minerals. This should be the wealthiest country in the face of the earth. And socialism has bought it to the point that the inflation is spiraling. People can't afford to buy food. Oh, Mark, you just don't understand. That's just wrongly applied. Yes, exactly. It's wrongly applied <laughs> socialism. You know, it's funny that if you look at the history of socialism, where has it been correctly applied? Well, that's you know, why, because that's they why say, we need to they say Sweden Americans. and Scandinavia, those are free free market countries. They're not I feel, socialist. I feel the same way about the ignorance towards NATO on the part of the president that I feel about the socialism on the part of the Democrats. This is just a historical, dangerous, dangerous ignorance. And it depresses me beyond compare that the Germans don't understand this. And I want to say something else about, I know you don't want to talk about Germany because you're right, this is bigger than Germany. Nonetheless, people should remember looking, they've been complaining about the rise of the AfD, this this nasty right-wing party that's risen up in Germany, hates, you know, xenophobic, anti-Jewish, anti-Muslim, awful, and, and other neo-Nazi skinhead type parties. They're all coming from the East. Folks, why do you think those are coming from the East? Because Socialism and communism and oppression corrupts these societies long after walls fall. They don't have normal thinking about politics. They don't understand how democratic societies work. And of course, they embrace the wrong idea. But we should not think that we are out of the woods on the dangers from this. No doubt. But then on the other hand, keep in mind uh, that probably are, you know, when we talk about NATO, who are our most reliable allies in NATO? So Germany which benefited more from American uh, sacrifice, largesse, support than any country possibly on the face of the earth, can't even bring itself to spend 2% on its uh, its, uh, defense. But 
Poland, no, we're Czech waiting Republic. For, we're waiting for 2031, all, all the countries of Eastern Europe, they're the ones who are stepping up. Uh, you know, no, they, you're, you're right, although there's plenty of democratic backsliding in Eastern Europe as well. And I do blame the, the history. I blame the corruption of these societies, the oppression that they suffered under Soviet and Soviet proxy rule. It does have reverberations to this day. And while I agree with you, they have anteed up for things in ways that Western Europeans haven't. I think we also need to recognize that the evils of the Soviet empire, the evils of communism, the evils of socialism really leave a lasting stain on these societies in ways that we have not yet begun to fathom. I can't understand why, as we celebrate the fall of the wall, there are people who just think that it was all for nothing because those guys were awesome. Do you know where Vladimir Putin was when the wall fell? In Germany, in Dresden. He was a officer in a KGB outfit in Dresden, in Germany during the wall. He saw what happened when the wall fell. He watched all of that. That's why he speaks German. And yes, and that is all, but that's also why he's very clear-eyed about the dangers to autocracy and why he, why he, why he's cracking down on the opposition in Russia, why he's determined not to make, just the Chinese learned the lessons of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Putin learned the lessons of the Berlin Wall. There are authoritarians out there who are trying to have it both ways. They want, they want the, uh, want the money they they want the money they can get. But they and they want the money they can get from capitalism, but without and the power the, they can have from totalitarianism. So we've we, democracy is winning, but we've still got our challenges. We sure as hell do. And with that, folks, I think this is the last of our anniversary series, right? We did the anniversary of the hostage crisis. Now we're doing the anniversary of the Berlin Wall. Oh, we'll come up with some more anniversaries. Excellent. Well, you have something to look forward to then, Excellent. everybody. Thanks for being here. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 